I want to share, um, if you were here last week, this kind of fits into last week, but it doesn't have to. It can stand on its own two legs. And so you, let's read it. Um, it's a story you well know in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Let me read it. Um, in verse 46, Mark 10 and 46. <clears throat> and they, they being um, the disciples gathered around Jesus, and um, then there would always be some sort of a crowd knotted around him. And they came to Jericho as he was going out from Jericho with his disciples, a great multitude. So the they has now expanded. They picked up the crowd as they'd gone through Jericho. And a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus the Nazarene, he began to cry out, Say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he began crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him here. And they, that's the guys who has sternly told him to shut up. They've now changed their tune. They called the blind man, saying to him, Take courage, arise, he's calling for you. And casting aside his cloak, he jumped up, came to Jesus. Answering him, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he received his sight and began following him on the road. Story of Bartimaeus. Um, I just really want to go through it. There are certain phrases there that somebody's got to talk about it, that they are so important and that they are placed in the Gospels, but they are keys to understanding the rest of the New Testament. Uh, it's a story uh, of this man who is in desperate need and he meets with the compassion and the power of Jesus to heal him. Um, th this story is strange in that it seems to appear in Luke, but in Luke there's two beggars and the two beggars in Luke are at the other end of the city. And then in Matthew, there are two beggars, but they don't, I don't know where they are. They just appear. And so there's endless debate of theologians who have nothing better to do to say, are we talking about the same people? I really don't care. Um, this one has got a name and, and that is probably because he was a member of the local church when Mark was written. Uh, I don't know if you realize that. The local church uh, had these people as members of the church. And so when he gives their name, it's saying, you know, he's 
And in this case, Bar Timaeus, it's a Hebrew word, and Mark translates it. Uh, it's Bar Timaeus, and then Mark says the son of Timaeus. That's what it means. Bar in Hebrew means son of, and Timaeus. And so he says, you know who this is, it's Timaeus' son, you know. Or you could even say, because Timaeus could be shortened in the Hebrew language, and so it's almost like he says, oh, Tim's son, you know, Tim's boy. Uh, that's the one I'm talking about. That, that's how it should come over. You're reading about someone that you know, and he he says he was the beggar, and he was the one that has his eyes open. As to the other stories, they all fit into this, but as I say, it doesn't matter to me. Um, we're dealing with a blind man. Maybe not so much of a man, because as I say, they know him by the name of his father, so it could be a younger guy. But he was blind, and you can't think of that by today's blind people. Blindness in Bible days was the most terrible thing that could happen to you. They, they had diseases of the eye, which today could be easily cured. But in those days, um, could rapidly make you totally blind. And uh, this, this fellow had been someone who could see. Do you remember how he, he said it to Jesus, I'm going to regain my sight. He had This was a disease that had taken his eyes or maybe an accident, but something had happened. He could see, then he couldn't see. But what are you going to do in the days that we're talking about? It was They couldn't cure it, and you can't work with blindness, and they didn't have a welfare system. And so the moment you had your diagnosis of blindness, life was essentially over. The parallel to it was leprosy, only that was worse, but... Um, in leprosy, the moment the priest diagnosed you as a leper, you were called the walking dead. There, there's no future for you. We don't know what to do with you. And, and, and you're, you're really, you're in our way. You're, you're useless to society. We've got to somehow look after you unofficially. And, and so you're looked down upon. You, you could have been a very important person in town, but the moment you're blind, you're finished. You're over. The best they could do was give you a cloak that sort of determined you to be a blind person. It was a sort of license to beg, and you put the coat on. And then you, hopefully you had a friend who would bother every morning to lead you to the special patch at the entrance and exit to the cities where they could just sit you down and hopefully, maybe, the friend would show up around noon to feed you something, but you're, you're there, helpless, unseeing, and all you could do is when you heard the patter of footsteps, you would cry out for, give me some money, you know, beg. Um, and, and usually, the beggars would all sit together, and so as you're coming, if you're walking along the path, you're going to hit maybe 10, 15 beggars, one after another, all screaming at you for money. Uh, sad, sad. Um, it was a living death. That, in fact, it was commonly believed 
I mean, it's superstition in one sense, but commonly believed by everybody that if you were blind, then the curse of God was on you. Obviously, somebody in your family had sinned. And if not what you sinned, then this punishment that has come, they couldn't think of anything worse, you see. If you're still alive but you're the walking dead, well, you're blind, and that must be the curse of God. And so, if and of course, there were other beggars who were not blind for similar reasons. They're now useless to society. Uh, but they would never look in the eye of another person. That was shame. They were ashamed. They were the cursed of God. And so, as they're asking you for money, they're looking the other way. And just to throw that out, you might remember when Peter and John went up to the temple and the beggar, who in his case, he couldn't walk, and Peter had to say, look at us, because the guy was looking all over the place, ashamed, I'm no good, I'm not worthy, and Peter had to say, stop and look at us, because we don't think you're that. We're going to give you something. Um and on, on, on what I just uh, elsewhere said, do you remember in John 5 when Jesus and his disciples passed by the man who had been born blind? Do you remember immediately the disciples said, who sinned, this man or, or his parents? It was assumed, of course, somebody sinned. This is the punishment of God. Try and get inside this man's head. It's not a nice place. There's shame. There's a sense of guilt that I don't know what it is, but I must be guilty. There's something wrong with me desperately wrong with me and Jericho have you ever been to Jericho it's do you know it's the lowest place on earth I don't know how many feet below sea level it is but um it's just above the Dead Sea that should tell you something and um, you go down into Jericho sweltering heat flies especially if you're sitting there a beggar surrounded by flies and hoping for someone to come and throw a penny in your hand. And then if you if you don't go on to the Dead Sea, you, you, you turn right and you go up for 17 miles. This is, is the, one of the steepest. Of course, you're coming down to the lowest spot on earth and, and it's a steep road right up to Jerusalem. And so the Jews who didn't want to meet with Samaritans, you know, those guys who lived in the middle, there's the Galilee right at the top, then the Samaritans, then Judea where Jerusalem is. So if you lived up here and you didn't want to go through Samaria, you would cut down by the River Jordan, come down, 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 down to Jericho, and then up to Jerusalem, and you'd avoid the Samaritans. And so there was a lot of traffic on this road. Now add to that the traffic of the travelers who were selling and you had the caravans of donkeys carrying uh, all their goods. You would have all of the camels coming by. It, it was a very busy, and for a beggar, that's good good news. And um, But also they had ears, and they're listening. And many times a, a blind person can hear more than those who see. And, and they're listening with all their ears. Um, they were listening... For gossip, really, that was about it. That was their life. Just hear what's going on. But also there was, what can I say? There was a mood 
among all of Israel of the Messiah. You see, in Daniel, Daniel almost gives you the date when Jesus will be born. He, he wrote his prophecy 500 years before Jesus came. But if, if you study it carefully, he, he almost tells you. And, and that's always God's method, almost. So it means you don't really know. But you're, it begins this hope and this expectancy. And it was everywhere. People talked about it. The Messiah is coming. And so a blind Jew would have memorized most of the Old Testament in one way or another. I know that's hard for you to think of, but then we we are the educated West who are as lazy as we can possibly be. But you go elsewhere in the world where they can't necessarily read or write or books are not available, they just simply memorize. And they get it to perfection. Um, they remember more than you do who can read. Uh, and, and a Jew especially, that was his education. Go to the rabbi, learn, memorize the Old Testament. And so in his blindness, sitting there listening to all the gossip and the rumors that came down the pike from up north and all of the travelers going through, uh, and, and what's going through his head also is massive portions of the Old Testament. I don't know. This isn't your your Baptist Sunday school thing and getting the. This is memorizing whole books of the Old Testament. This is and and not just memorizing it, but pondering it and discussing it with others who have memorized it too. And of course, memorizing Scripture, all the rumors and buzz talk would always hold something about the Messiah. And there in the Old Testament, one of the marks of the Messiah was that he would open the eyes of the blind. That, when I say that, when the Messiah came, they, they said he's got to open the eyes of the blind. That would be the mark that he's Messiah. Um, you've probably read it, but maybe not thought about it in that context. In Isaiah 35, it says that your God is coming, and when he comes, he'll save you then the eyes of the blind will be opened. Then the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy. And they say, when you, when you hear that or see that, you'll know the Messiah has come. And he says, then um, they shall come to Zion with joyful shouting everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's not a bad thing to turn over in your head while you sit under the blazing sun with flies around your head hoping someone will throw you a dime. Um, that's what he had. That was uh, other than Isaiah 42 when he speaks specifically to Messiah he says, I may appoint you a covenant to the people, light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Of course, the presence of religion, um, ever present, and religion only speaks in the future tense. Religion never speaks in the present tense. And so... They, they would place these scriptures, and there's only two I just quoted, but the Old Testament's full of it, and religion would say, one of these days, one of these days. But 
the people who had memorized simply, that is not without all the tradition and the theology on top of it, they said, it's now, it's now, it's happening, it's coming. Can you imagine if that was your mindset, a traveler from the Galilee comes by one day and says, there's somebody in the Galilee, we, we, we don't have a file to put him in. Can you, can you get it? We, we just read the Gospels. But can you imagine sitting there in the heat of Jericho, blind, and you hear that there's somebody in the Galilee, which is at the end of this road that I'm sitting on, and specifically, not only the massive stories of healings, but he makes sight for the blind. That... I, I, I mean, well, it would be, I was going to say a flicker of hope. This was more like an explosion of hope that there's somebody up in the Galilee that is healing the sick, causing people to rejoice and be glad and shout for joy, and he's healing the blind, the blind, one of our kind, you know. Suddenly there's a possibility of life beyond the begging patch. And it would make sense. As I said, there's a group of these beggars. They start talking among themselves. This, this is better gossip than they've ever heard. This is better than CNN. I mean, this is, this is us. Someone who can heal the blind. And, and that turns into desire. I'm, I'm choosing my words very carefully because I'll, I'll warn you, we here in the Western world, we're more in the religious class than in the Bartimaeus class. Um, we, we can study things and say how interesting, whereas Bartimaeus doesn't know what to do with himself. He's so excited because this, this is him. It, and then we move from... Uh, what is an unfortunate translation of when Jesus said, whatever you ask. Today, asking doesn't mean very much, um, especially in a welfare state. And so um, the word actually is better translated desire. It's got fire to it. It's got passion. It's got must. It's got necessity to it. That's what would happen. You get a bunch of blind beggars who hear Jesus in the Galilee is healing the blind, they're going crazy. It's, it's a passion. They talk of nothing else. I want you to understand this. The promises of God, you know, the, the scriptures full of promises of one kind or another. Why is it God speaks in promises? Seriously. A promise is something he tells you he's going to do ahead of time, and then he does it. Why, why doesn't he just do it and surprise you? Uh, why does he do it by promise? And I believe the promises of God, every promise of God is there to fuel desire. By putting the promises there, he stokes the fire. That by the time he's actually doing it, you're crazy to get it. I... I I want to put it this way, I believe that a necessary part of understanding God 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is desire. He's a passionate God. He's a God who desires. And our desiring is about bringing ourselves into line with him and getting in sync. Therefore, he needs promises to get us started on that route. The Holy Spirit is the desire of God in action among us. So when the Bible says ask, understand it, it really means a desire for the things that are asked for. And that's why I come back and say religion killed it. There's no desire left in religion. Religion just talks about everything like it's meaningless. Um, Religion never expects anything to happen. It's talked itself out of it. And when religion prays or asks, uh, it's more like, you know, winning the lottery. There's no expectancy of God. It's just, I'll do it, and who knows, I might hit the lucky number. It's a dead thing. Um, Outside of what I know today, I hate prayer meetings. Prayer meetings are the most boring thing that could ever be concocted by humans, where... Yeah, you're nodding. Yeah, I think you, you agree with me. There's no expectancy. It's just going through the same old, same old. And um, whereas when I come to Scripture, they, they, everything's alive. And you get a man like Bartimaeus. See, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, works in a way that fits our humanity. So how do, does it work with, with us? We hear a word, a promise. I mean, that could be all the way down to telling your kids you're going to take them out for ice cream. You, that's how we work as humans. You, you tell people a promise. You tell them what you're going to do. And, and that, that possibility then grows inside us. And we realize that this promise is now available to us. So there's a promise of something that speaks to what I want and now it's available to me. And its availability then fans this desire, this want. I, I want this. It's available. And then my imagination comes in and there's a, a new future open up in my imagination. And I can see that ice cream. I mean, it's there. I taste it. Wild dreams. And then you talk about it, and that only increases the desire. So there it was, a bunch of beggars talking about someone in the Galilee who's making blind people see. And the more they put it together, they determined this was Messiah because they called him Son of David. Well, Jesus wasn't the Son of David, or was he? Yeah. That is an expression taken right out of 2 Samuel 7, that, that a son or a descendant of David would be Messiah. So these are no fools, these guys. They might look like it, beggars in their beggar cloaks, you know, just grabbing a nickel here and a dime there. But these guys had memorized, they're turning it over. This one is the son of David. This one is the promised Messiah through the genealogy of David. And he's the one that is opening the eyes of the blind. 
which is according to all the covenants that God has made, all his promises. And so they're, they're, they're drawn into this new possibility. There's a new reason for someone to take me to the beggar's patch. That There's a new world that's just opening up at my feet. I don't know when they heard. Could have been they heard right at the beginning. That would have meant for two or three years. They're sitting there under the sun talking about the son of David and what's he doing and the occasional rumor. Jesus didn't come down to Jericho very often. Um, And as I say, Jericho was under the shadow of Jerusalem and the influence of Jerusalem would not be good. Uh, Jerusalem is the world center of religion and Jerusalem hated Jesus it was Jerusalem that crucified him and these are just 17 miles down the road from Jerusalem many of the priests and temple uh, leaders lived in Jericho that's when Jesus told the story a certain man went down went down 17 miles down to Jericho well, that, that road that I talked about that led so steeply down 17 miles, um, it's there today. I've been on that road. Um, and it was called in those days, it had a name, it was called Bloody Road because so many people were mugged on that road. And, um, and it says that the priest came down from the temple. He's going home. And when he sees the man on the side of the road, he just goes on the other side. That's the kind of religion. It stinks. It's going down the road and man can die. I can't. They lived in Jericho. This is not a place where you'd expect a fiery group of expectancy of Messiah. I don't know how long it was, but it would be a long time if you get the, the drift of the, these men. They've got nothing else to do but listen to gossip and talk about it. Yeah. Three years, maybe. And now, suddenly, the decibels of sound get much louder and the sound of a hundred feet on the dirt road. What's going on? What's happening? No, when you're blind, you can't see and you don't know. But something's happening. And somebody just tells him quickly as they rush by, Jesus, the one from Nazareth, the Galilee, is passing through Jericho within the next half an hour. Uh, And there's a crowd with him and already the kids are all run ahead. They're all, everything's happening right now. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And hope suddenly now turns into faith. And as I've said for the last couple of weeks, faith is not something you have that enables you to get what you don't have. That is what natural faith and much of what is talked about in America as faith is not faith. That's, uh, I don't know what to call it. But it's out of a poverty. I don't have something. Now, if I say that I've got it enough, I'll sort of draw it to me. Yeah, have you heard that? Um, you, 
they talk about these influences and these things that draw it to no 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 that's not faith it's not faith faith is knowing i have it and faith said i'll take it even though presently you can't see it faith is that knowing i've got it and i know god has given it to me and, and therefore i take it and what they've been doing for however long is kicking this around uh, whichever way now the word is he's here and by this time at least Bartimaeus is saying he is the son of David he's coming with it and I am taking it he's not going to say well if I have enough faith I'll get it that is miserable American Christianity no the Bible is faith I have it this man can taste it and and you don't have to you read that just a few times and you begin to feel what this man is feeling he's going going crazy it's now it's here it's available and I'm going to take it and he explodes in wild shouting he unleashed every dream and imagination he'd had for three years. Screams it. Son of Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Now, this is not uh, to get the attention of a disinterested Jesus. This isn't, well, I know he's going to be walking down this road, and I know he doesn't give a fig about me, but if I shout loud enough, he'll, he'll come. No, this is a response. Did you notice as we read it, when Bartimaeus comes to Jesus, it says, Jesus answered him. Well, well to answer, somebody says something first, and then you answer. Jesus answered him. Jesus had received a message from Bartimaeus and now he answers Bartimaeus. What was the message? The only way a blind man can communicate, I can't see you, I don't know where you are, you're somewhere in the vicinity, so I'm going to send you a message. And the message was, Jesus, I know who you are. You're the son of David. I don't know if anybody else knows that, but I know it. I'm sending you the message. I know who you are. I'm over here. And I'm waiting for your compassionate blessing. What was that? Well, that's the word mercy. There's a part of me that wants to say I hate this word mercy. Um, It... It's not in the Bible as we understand it today. Mercy comes from the Latin word. When Europe was so blind in religion that you had to speak Latin in order to even pray, um, it, it just separated you out. Latin was the language of the elite and the educated and the intensely religious. And in Latin, they they had the Vulgate version of the Bible, which was in Latin. And and this word in Latin is misericord. Isn't that just great? Yeah, misericord. 
as this. Yeah. And that's not, no, 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 no. And, and the King James Version, um, if you go back into the Old Testament of the King James Version, it says nothing all the way through the Old Testament. It has mercy, mercy, mercy. That is, no. The word in the Hebrew there is chesed, which means a covenant has been made. And now God will keep that covenant even if it kills him. He will die rather than break that covenant. And he will act, do in your life everything he's promised. And it translates better as loving kindness. And the later versions of the Bible after the King James did begin to translate it as loving kindness. But it's not mercy. Mercy today gives all pity me. I'm no good and I have mercy upon me. I mean, it's, it's got the cringing, cowering idea. No, no. And, and so in the New Testament, remember everybody in the New Testament were Hebrews. So we don't speak Hebrew anymore, at least in terms of writing. But that's how they thought. They were Hebrews in their head. And, and among themselves, they spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. What, what does mercy mean? Especially now in the New Testament, what does it mean? Well, if you just want a, a simple word, compassion. Have compassion on me. Compassion... Um, that's a, that's actually a Latin word, but um, com, com in Latin means with, passion means to suffer, so compassion means I will suffer with you, or another way I'll get in your shoes and I'll feel what you're feeling. Actually, compassion is a word which means just what I've said, but it's added to it. I I will not and I cannot let you stay in the pain you're in. Compassion means I'll get inside your pain to rescue from it, um, because I just can't. I can't walk by you. I just can't leave you where you are. That's compassion. Um, so he's saying, how can, if if we leave out the Old Testament for a minute, um, he he's he's saying. Um, come and see see my pain, see where I'm at, and I know that you can come inside it and get me out of it. Stand in my shoes. Um, you, you won't look at my pain helplessly and say I'm terribly sorry for you. Compassion is not sympathy. Sympathy is a helpless thing, but compassion is powerful. You're going to release me. In fact, if you really wanted to translate this properly, it means, uh, son of David, do mercy to me. Do mercy. That's a much better translation. Not have mercy on me. It's do it. Be compassionate. Release your love. Do mercy. When you translate this into other languages, like I confronted around the world, um, one would be, Show your heart to me. That would translate this into some. Um, the one I like best is feel for me in your stomach. Um, and you know what that is. It, it feels, your very guts are moved. That, that's compassion. But in 
some languages, that's the only way you can translate it. Feel with me in your stomach. Uh, let your heart go out to me. Another one is treat me as your loving child. Compassion. That's this word, so forget mercy. That's this word. But, remember, the people who spoke this in the original language were Hebrews. That takes you right back into the Old Testament. Loving kindness. Loving kindness that arises from covenant. And covenant, I've told you before, is not contract. Contract is an American Western world. Uh, Covenant means... I give myself unlimitedly to you and, and I, I will die to achieve the ends of my love. Powerful. Contract says, if you do what I tell you to do, I'll give you what you deserve. Yeah. That's contract. It means I don't trust you as far as I can see you, so sign here. And um, the covenant says, I belong to you. I give myself to you. That's loving kindness. That's the original meaning of mercy. It means that you esteem me highly. Um, You've made covenant. I'm so important to you that you are willing and ready to give yourself away to me. Covenant. You are very slow to make a covenant. Until death do us part. Um... So you see, all this idea that I'm unworthy and there's something dirty and wrong about me and I come before God with fear, all that belongs to contract. Have I kept the contract? Am I good enough? Am I worthy enough? Covenant says I can't understand it. It's beyond my comprehension. But God counts me worthy. God brings me into this love relationship where he will give himself totally to me so do mercy it means do the covenant do that which you have sworn with a covenant oath to do strong in a sense he was desiring what Jesus desired he somehow got inside Jesus' head And Jesus is here because he is God's covenant. He is God giving himself to us. And somehow this beggar has got the drift. The covenant of God is now walking down the street. So then I reach out, lay hold, do covenant. I know who you are. I, I, I can't see you, but I'm here. I'm here. Come and do me covenant. So he's, he's not saying I'm the best chap in Jericho. He said, I understand the covenant and I'm calling upon it. Um, so his call, and this is important as we get into this further, his call was right in line with the entire scripture that was a revelation of God. That is, he wasn't making this up on the moment. He he was, everything the scripture had said since Genesis had all pointed to this. And now he's laying hold of that and saying, essentially, you made the covenant. The covenant is here. And I'm calling on that covenant. 
So he was consistent with scripture. He was right in the middle of what God wanted to do. And he shouted it out. He didn't say, if I sit here and think hard enough, God will pick up my vibes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. God's not into mind reading. He invented speech. God himself puts his thoughts into sound. So Genesis 1 and creation was not made of some good sound, uh, good thoughts that God had. I, I, I know this sounds stupid, but it's very important. Especially in today's world, because New Age, um, Eastern religions have invaded the church. And the church is moving toward a lot of energies and vibes and feelings and vibrations. Yeah, And you can't fellowship with a vibration. Seriously, uh, I can't talk to a God who is just energy. Um, he's, he's ultimate person. And he made me in such a fashion that I could actually hear him in my spirit. And he made me so I can actually talk and sounds come out. And those sounds are as creative as when God made the same sounds in Genesis 1. I bring something into being that wasn't there before. In the Psalms it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. You know, not, not, don't, don't, don't sit and just talk. Uh, think. Br- bring it out. Speak. Declare it. Ask me. I, I, I don't know if I'm saying what I want to say. I mean, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit chooses not to be a mind reader. I say chooses because he could. He does know what you're thinking. In fact, he knows everything about you. He knows all your needs. Then why doesn't he just go ahead and do what he will do? No, he wants you to talk to him. And I that sounds so simple, but I could take you for an hour through the scripture where God refuses to know what he knows. And he says, you've got to tell me first. Right, right in the first chapter of Genesis, Adam, where are you? It's the daftest question I've ever heard. God knew where he was. But he wants Adam to come out and say, I'm here. Yes. What have you done? He knows what he's done. But he wants Adam to come and say, God, I screwed up. Yes. You know, he, he, he's made us like that. And it's part of the whole relationship with God. He chooses. He wills to hear your voice. There are some times when we just have to think our prayers. And that's in the Bible too. But 99% of the time, God says, speak it, speak it. And so he shouts, I'm here. And I know who you are. And he says, those who were ahead of the parade, sort of, at least they thought they were Jesus' handlers, you know. 
Yeah. You got, a, you got this VIP. This VIP. And we're, yeah, we're, we're going to, you know, make way, make way. It could have well been the disciples, seriously. Um, do you remember it was the disciples who, when the children climbed all over Jesus, they tried to get the kids out of here. And Jesus had to say, I want the kids to come to me. It was the disciples who said, we've got to handle this. And Was it the disciples? I don't know. But certainly it was those who felt they had a relationship to Jesus that made them better than the crowd. So they could come and tell the crowd to get out of the way. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They looked down on those that they deemed were not as close as they were. And so when this voice is now commanding the whole highway, they say, shut up, you old fool, you're disturbing the parade. His response was, he shouted even louder. Yeah, Yeah, right. And then Jesus stops and calls for him. Jesus is actively on the side of the insignificant, annoying, rejected, cursed of God, punished by God, beggar. If God be for us, who can be against us? Is the way the New Testament puts it. If God be for us, he's pro us. He likes us. He's on our side. Bartimaeus' agenda is more important to Jesus than the agenda of all of Jericho and especially his handlers. And when he says, bring him to me, the handlers suddenly change their tune. And they say, come on, come on. He's calling for you. We'll make a way for you. And he leaps up. Remember, he's blind. But he leaps up and he took, it says, very, he took off his cloak. He threw away his license to beg. He knew. You talk about you taste it, you got it. That's faith. I've got it. Not if I say it enough, I'll have it. I've got it. And if I've got it, I don't need this anymore. And he took off his cloak. There was no other reason for taking it off. Took off his cloak. God in Christ listens. He hears our voice of hope and trust. Bartimaeus stood before Jesus. You ever thought of that? His face is flushed, he's panting from shouting and running. And he's standing in front of Jesus. Where, where do we get the idea from that whenever you're in the presence of God, you've got to fall flat on your face? Yeah. That's pagan. Did you know that? Pagan religions say that. Wow. Wherever in the scripture people came to Jesus, 
If they went down, he picks them up. In Revelation 1, John, of all people, John fell down before Jesus. He said, I was like one dead. And Jesus picked him up and says, stand up on your feet. In the Old Testament, there's, and I'm trying to think where it is, but it's an actual, it says, stand on your feet so I can talk to you. God's looking you in the eye. He's not into groveling. He's not into, I'm unworthy, I'm no good. That's pagan religion. And religion has brought paganism into, that's how we look at God. He stood. He stood. All the his world was sitting, and sitting as one that people looked down at. <laughs> he sat in the dirt at the lowest place on earth, <laughs> and the people looked down at him. And if he had eyes to see, he wouldn't look at them. Shame. But before the Creator, lover. He stands. And in a few moments, it will be eye to eye. But then, Jesus said, I've been with this question for years. I I don't think I'm going to get to it today. It's too big. What do you want me to do for you? I mean, the question in itself. (laughs) What do you think he wants? Isn't it obvious? I mean, do you think he's made this racket because he wants you to give him a dollar? You know? Or maybe it would nice you took me out for a good meal. Seriously, I'm very serious. What was... What do you want... very important very important I mean just right off Jesus is giving respect to this man and if if you're just talking about Jesus as another human being that would be enormous who who gives respect to these beggars in in that context See, Jesus could have just simply healed him. Let's get on our way. But that would not be showing respect to him as a human being. It would be gate-crashing his life and saying, I know what you need. God never gate-crashes. And sometimes we wish he would. (laughs) Uh, Our biggest problem is this question. Why did he have to mess up my life by asking me what I wanted, you know? He would have been treating him as a mindless robot. I I don't want to hear what you're talking about. Just get healed and get out of my way. Instead, he's opening a conversation. He wants to talk. He wants to know the beggar's desires... And to know them, 
in his own language. As I say, God chooses not to know what he knows. He wants to hear my deepest longing in my own language. He wants to hear me say how I understand life and what I want out of it. And he not only knows, but he knows better than I do. He knows what I need far better than I know. But he doesn't gatecrash me with that. He says, you tell me. What do you want? We'll get to what I know is best for you later on. But right now, I just want to hear you. In your babbling baby talk, would you tell me where you're at? We are of such importance to God. The Father wants to hear us. And he meets us in his word, his son Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is holding us all together. Just so we can answer his question. What do you want? He's honoring our human freedom. That we're free to choose. We're free to say, I don't want. And he honors that. Again, many times I wish he wouldn't. But the fact is, we have been taught in Western Christianity that God is sovereign and being sovereign, he does what he chooses and we say, Amen, O God, I'm unworthy. And that's Christianity. And it isn't. Christianity is Father, Son, and Spirit sitting down to converse with me. You know, even as far back as Isaiah, he said, come, let us reason together. Let's have a talk. He doesn't want me to say what the church told me to say. He doesn't want me to be a religious robot. He said, what's up? Pull up a chair. Have a cup of coffee. Let's talk. What do you want me to do? So my answer to that question is the beginnings of a genuine relationship with God. I mean, for real. Because I'm believing that what I say in terms of what I believe I want, is of supreme importance to the Holy Trinity. They, Father, Son, and Spirit, obviously take nothing for granted. They didn't sit down and say, well, I know exactly what Jeff wants, and so we don't need to ask him, just give it to him. No, they, they do not take it for granted if I could use that expression, they're going to sit down and question, and it's not an interrogation. It's over a cup of coffee. And it doesn't matter how long the conversation lasts. The whole of Jericho is going nuts, saying, what's happened? Why why, why is the parade held up? It doesn't matter. There's only two people on the face of the earth right now, Jesus and Bartimaeus. What's up? See This desire has burned inside of Bartimaeus for who knows how long. 
But now it's got to be brought into focus. He's got to say, articulate what has been these formless wishes, thoughts, imaginations. Now he's going to say it in bold words. What do you want? And of course, he's going to say it to all of us later on, whatsoever you ask him, whatsoever, whatsoever you ask, I will do it. That's the same thing in a different way. What do you want? Want, desire. Covers the whole spectrum of human existence. What do I want? It certainly covers everything the covenant has talked about. Okay, I can't, I'm not going to do the whole jolly thing on the Jericho Road. So, out of everything that I would be delighted to do, what, what is it you want me to do? Be specific. Which blessing of the covenant are you talking about? You call me son of David. You call upon loving kindness. Fantastic. Now, in this vast world of loving kindness that covers every aspect of human existence, what do you want me to do? Be specific. See, without going into it, in, in, under the law, under the Old Testament, these covenant blessings, they covered everything. You can read them in Deuteronomy 28. That's just one chapter, but it covers... I mean, it covers everything physical. Your job, the, the details of your work. Right from it, you, you go out of the door to the shops and it says you'll be blessed, covenantally blessed, when you go to the store and you're, you're going to buy something, but you will, it will, God will bless you in that. When you go to your job, you'll be favored. I mean, it's very... What can I say? They're mundane. You say, really, is God's covenant into that? And you don't have to think about it. You don't have to stand on your doorstep saying, is it the will of God I turn left or right? No, just be you. And God celebrates himself in you as you be you. It covers everything. Everything that becomes the source of anxiety is covered. So that if, if you own cows, well, every cow is the most blessed cow in the county. Um, I'm quoting scripture here, you see. Yeah. It's, and of course, healing, every cell in your body is a covenant cell. And you can speak to your cells as covenant cells that God has blessed you. It's health. That's under the Old Testament. In the New Testament, what's the covenant? God himself becomes human. And now he faces work. He faces taxes. He faces what shall I eat, what shall I drink, what shall I wear, where shall we live? The whole gamut of human existence. God himself became one of us to meet it eyeball to eyeball. Yes. Not to mention all of our mental. God took to himself a human brain, mental process, imagination exactly like ours. Yes. So he became us. 
and could understand now when I talk about this or that. God himself knows because he took our brain to him, incarnation. So he talked to us in Matthew 6 about anxiety. Not because he's God up there saying, I think you humans have this thing called anxiety. But because he became one of us and got into the middle of a world that produces anxiety. And then he told us how it was solved. He said, Father knows. Father knows. It's okay. He's he's got right there with us. So when he says, what do you want? What do you want? We've got it all covered. I meet you in every detail of life. What do you want? This isn't a wish list that you just write it down, you know. Your your letter to Santa Claus, you know. And and then at the bottom, anything else that you'd like to give me, you know. There's a word for that. It's called apathy. Take it, leave it. I don't really care. It'd be nice. Maybe win the lottery. I I don't care. And we go to prayer meetings and we just list all our relatives and God bless them, if it be you, will I? (laughs) Haven't you been to a prayer meeting recently? It's... What what do you want? Could somebody please tell me? What do you want? I'm not going to say what my religion told me to say because that really means I might as well not be here. If Bartimaeus had said, when Jesus says, what do you want? He says, well, really, if it be your will. No, you've you've stopped the jolly parade. You've, You've... Screamed your head off, and you're now going to say you can do as you want. Yeah. No, I scream, Son of David, because I know who you are. I said, Have mercy, have compassion, have covenant action on me, because I know your covenant. Yes. I'm not here to say if it be your will. I know your will. I wouldn't have made a racket if I didn't. Yeah. So I'm not going to say. I'm not going to tell you what the culture says, that I'm a cursed man, because I'm not. I'm a covenant man. I'm not going to tell you what religion says, because they don't know what they're talking about. Years and years and years and years ago, when I was a pastor, I was still a teenager, and I was in a place in England, in a place with Suffolk, Yarmouth, and we prayed for the sick a lot, and there was this woman, and she had a foot that was half the size of her other foot, and it was in this big boot, so she had sort of balance. And, and she came, and we prayed for her. And after we prayed for her, she began to scream. It hurts, it hurts. Her foot was growing inside the boot. And the ladies took her into the restroom and they managed to get the boot off as her foot was growing. And we hung it on the wall of the church, this big boot thing that was... She went back to her church and they said, 
the will of God for you was to have a small foot. And you've got to go back and get that boot and put it back on. Oh, yeah, that's religion. She came back. Oh, she came back. She said, I've got to have it. That's the will of God for me. But of course, she couldn't get it back at her foot. So she was stuck. But um, (laughs) did you know what I mean? Do you ask for what religion says you can? Who have already determined what God's will is. Do you determine what the culture says God can do? Or do you just throw, you abandon yourself to God's love and his covenant? And of course, the the other beggars is only one that's mentioned. Maybe that's because they knew his name. Um, But uh, uh, most of them are two. What about all the others? Ever thought about them? That they had settled into, this is the way it is. That they now had an identity of blindness. They had made the tragedies of life into their identity of who they were. I could take another two hours on that. Where we take the worst things that have happened to us and they say that's the way it is. Well, we never move away from it. And even when he's standing there right in front of us, we say, well, you know, it is. This is the way it is. Nothing's going to change. I accept the way it is. Did Bartimaeus ever say, do I deserve this more than the other beggars? Why me all by myself? Ever heard, what are you doing praying? Other people hurt a lot more than you do. Do you think God's going to deal with you when there's people... You know, you've heard it all. The answer is yes. <laughs> it's not a wish list. My desire that is based and rooted in God's promises. I can feel the goal that they're holding out in front of me. In my imagination, inspired by the Spirit, I've already got it. And so I take off my coat and run to Jesus. Everything changes with desire. Desire means I can't live without this. Asking, I can. I'll ask for it. No harm in asking. But desire means I can't live without this. I got it. It's a necessity. What do you want? Jesus took side with the beggar against all that didn't glorify the Father. What do you want me to do? God. I mean, just the fact of it. God. God. And of course, in Jesus, who is God the Son, we meet God the Father. And... Wherever God the Father, God the Son, there is God the Spirit. So here is the Holy Trinity saying to a blind beggar, what do you want me to do? Just think about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's in this same category. Jesus bestowed an honor and a significance, and a worth to this man. 
who stood in front of him. The Holy Trinity waits for the man's answer. I mean, it's almost like saying time stopped. Come on. God says, what do you want? And the earth stops spinning. What do you want? God says he's waiting to act in accord with your answer. And then, the answer. I want to regain my sight. Are you nuts? I mean, that, I mean, think about it. You're blind, man. There's no cure. And you're standing there without an excuse saying, I want to regain my sight. That's stupid. Get real. That's impossible. It's ridiculous. Those who heard would mutter, the man's gone crazy. Too much time under the sun, you know. The best that a human being can do is say, wouldn't it be great if? I wish. One, one day, one day. That's the best we can go. And this man has leaped from that to the covenant promises of Jesus he lays hold of God's love intention and with words reaches out to receive what he dares to believe he sees in those promises and Jesus listened the road to Jericho became the center of the universe Heaven has come to earth. And this man is joining his words to God's words. He's taken the place alongside of God where God's divine no to all sin and suffering and bondage and fear. God says no. And Bartimaeus stood into that, which was into God's divine yes to a new world of wholeness and peace and joy, salvation for the whole person. And not as a promise now, because the promise is standing right in front of him. Who does he think he is? God, Amias, what on earth have you done to think you can deserve this? What do you want? It means that the will of God is not rigid. Now, I don't know where you've been raised. I was raised where the will of God is like driving up I-10. And if you miss the exit, you're, you're finished. You missed the will of God. So you'll have to get off at the next exit, but that's not the will of God. That's, well, I don't know what that is, but you're, 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 you miss the will of God because the will of God is, it's like a railroad. It's narrow. No ifs, buts, perhaps is. You're in the will of God. You're out of the will of God. And here, Jesus is saying, what do you want me to do? 
which means the will of God at this moment is up for grabs. Actually, whatever you decide, Bartimaeus, will be the will of God. I, I'm gonna, and I'm not joking now. He is saying to Bartimaeus, you set the limits. What is your will in this matter? And we, Holy Trinity, will join into your will. I know, that's stunning. It will probably take you the afternoon to carry that one through. I mean that. I haven't really got over it yet. I've been thinking about it for 70 years, but I, it, it, it's, it's difficult when you've been taught so rigidly. When, when you've been told to weep at some altar that you've missed the will of God. And here is the God who doesn't appear to have anything so rigid. And if Bartimaeus had not chosen what he chose, God's will of love and healing and wholeness and peace and joy would still be there, untouched. And Bartimaeus would have a very beautiful life in God's love. The Holy Trinity is not going to be rocked off its base because you chose that you didn't want healing or whatever. Do you understand me? It's an honest question. What do you want? We'll fit in with that. You said the limits. When you say have mercy on me, what particular kind of mercy do you want? You've got to have a certain view of God to say that. Because we ask, in what we call prayer, we ask consistent with who we think God is. You follow me? Mm -hmm. I will ask for X, Y, Z because I believe that's the kind of God he is. So if I, I ask ambiguously, you know those kind of prayers, they could be answered or not and you wouldn't know because you, you, you were so vague about it which is usually in that word blessing, God bless. You don't even know what the word means, but we use it because it sounds good. You know, bless them, bless them all. We're very unwilling, we're scared to be specific. We say, well, that would be too, too bold. No, the truth is, you're not sure what God wants to do. So let's not put him on the spot. Give him wriggle room, and then, just, I mean, your will be done, well, that covers everything. Actually, your will be done means cancel everything I've just said and do what you want. You know. yeah. <laughs> and so if we believe that God enjoys making it painful, if we believe that God is into suffering, into beating us up for our good and to keep us humble, if you believe that, then that will fashion your expectancy. And you'll ask within that. But if he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of unlimited love, who with him freely gives us all things, then that's our bold expectancy. And so this vast will of God 
dare I say this open-ended? See, I, I, the, the, the goal of God is so big, he can fit us into it. And teach us sometimes where we're a bit off, but that's okay, he doesn't lose it if we're off. He gently brings us. So we don't ask with religious cowering. We don't ask with morbid introspection that we're unworthy. Nor do we focus on our faith to see if we've got enough. We ask, we desire our desires. This is what I want. Do with it what you will. Open-ended. That I might receive my sight. That's not begging. That's a straight, honest answer to a straight, honest question. I want to see. That's amazing because he spent his life to this day begging. He only knew how to beg. But he doesn't beg with Jesus. He's been given significance. He's been given respect. And he responds boldly to what Jesus said. He jumped into the river of life without any religious permission. Religion would have left him hesitating on the bank, questioning his worthiness. Jesus' response is, yes! That's what I want to do too. I thought you'd never ask, you know. Is. So here are two wills, the will of the beggar and the will of God. And they came together as one will, God's will. And his blindness would still be there unless he'd have asked. Because that's the only record of blind people being healed that day, even though there was the whole beggar's patch there. He asked. What do you want draws you into the circle of the bold? And then Jesus said, your faith has healed you. Well, again, where did his faith come from? See, we've been taught that you've got faith here somewhere and you've just got to get more faith. No. No. His faith came from what he'd read in the scripture, what he had seen and heard of this Jesus who fits what the scripture is talking about. And then when the scripture stands in front of him in the person of Jesus who is the word of God, faith is. Jesus is the author of, and finisher of our faith. Yes. Yes. The life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Yes. We trust his faith. Yes. So Jesus, I think, when he said, your faith has made you whole, did it with a wink. Because yeah. I know that you know and I know <laughs> that your faith is really my faith that you found as you meditated and turned this over. Well, I could go on. We're in the new covenant. 
Jesus is no longer standing in front of us. He lives inside of us and he confronts me in my innermost person and says, what do you want? Because now at the very center of my being, says Corinthians, I share with him the mind of Christ. And we can sit down over coffee within me and discuss life. What do I want? This is not a grocery list to a bored God. This is, this is our desire in Christ Jesus presented to the Father's desire. And we go into life to transmit Father's love into every situation without any timidity or hesitation. We are the wire through which the divine blessing of God's power flows. So there it is. What do you want that I may do to you? Father, thank you. Thank you that this is who you are. Open our eyes. Holy Spirit, let your boldness and courage be given to us for us to respond to such a God as this. We receive your blessing right into this meeting now. Right into every person in their rooms, in their Zoom. Come Holy Spirit and wed us to this word. Amen. And amen. Well, there it is.